Well, hey, good morning. My name is Ben McIntyre. I serve children and youth here at Alliance Fellowship. I get to preach today from God's Word. We are continuing our series uh, in the Gospels. I invite you to open your Bible or your devices to Luke chapter 4. Just hold that. Uh, Pastor Nick is not here today. This past week uh, was he and his wife Katie's 20th wedding anniversary. Very cool, yeah? So uh, they got to have the opportunity to have some time off, and so I get to preach, and uh, we're just thankful for Nick and Katie and for their family. So this morning, my hope and my prayer is that God is going to speak through us, through his word, and today's sermon, I have a title, it is this, it's Two Responses, One Lord. You can write that down, gentlemen, you can write that down in your notes. Two Responses, one Lord. And the question that we get to wrestle with uh, uh, as we look at Luke is this. What will you do with Jesus? What will you do with Jesus? Because for some reason, people have been talking about Jesus. They've been calling him Lord for over 2,000 years. And it doesn't show signs of stopping. Now, if you're here and you call yourself a Christ follower, uh, then this will be a good reminder of why We follow him because the gospel message of new life in Jesus should be new every morning. And I will just say that I, I, that rings true in my own life. I, I can't explain it other than this. The gospel message never changes, but it is continually changing me. Now, on the other side of the spectrum, you might be here and, uh, because someone dragged you to church. Or you don't even know like how you got here. It's like, oh, I don't know. What happened? How did I get here? I don't know. I don't know what, how, how you are here, but here you are. And you don't know exactly where you stand when it comes to Jesus. And you'll get to answer the same question too. What will you do with Jesus? Because from a purely human and worldly standpoint, Jesus can appear simply just to be a blip on the radar of human history. He was a Jew. He lived over 2,000 years ago in what is now the largest Arab city in Israel called Nazareth. But when Jesus was on earth, Nazareth was a small village which had uh, more important and larger cities surrounding it. So he didn't come from an economic or political or entertainment hub. It was just a small village. Not much happening. Think Belgrade 20 years ago. Nazareth. All right? Okay, no, I love Belgrade, right? Uh, he also didn't come from wealth. He was, he was a tradesman. He worked as a carpenter. He didn't have good looks, right? The prophet Isaiah tells us he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. In other words, Jesus was plain looking. There was nothing exceptional about him physically. He was just a simple Carpenter. He wasn't a CEO. He didn't have any corporate sponsorships. He wasn't a famous athlete or musician. He didn't have millions of followers on social media. And he never went far from his hometown during his life. He was not well-traveled at all. And yet, here we are in 2023, and people still can't stop talking about Jesus today. People tend to be either fascinated, confused, frustrated, or angry with Jesus. And that isn't too far off 
from how people felt about Jesus when he was on earth. For many people, they just don't know what to do with Jesus and what he said and did during his life on earth. So this morning, we're going to look at these two moments where people were fascinated, confused, frustrated, and angry. And as we conclude, we'll meet a man who ends up on the ground before Jesus, crying out to him, get away from me. Because everyone has to do something with Jesus. So where do you stand? Because whether you like it or not, whether you believe he's the son of God or he's just a mere man, everyone has to do something with Jesus. You will either reject him as just another human or you will trust him as Lord and Savior. And if you don't put your trust in Jesus, what are your alternatives? We'll talk about that. That's where we're going this morning. This is about trust and where you will put it. Will you pray with me? Jesus, we come before you and we ask that you make yourself so plain for us to see. Open our eyes, our ears, our hearts, and our minds to you. Thank you for being obedient to the Father, even to the point of death, a death that you did not deserve as you took the penalty for our sins. May we bow our heads. May we bend our knees to you because of your love, grace, mercy, and justice. Amen. Okay. Let's look at this first encounter. We're going to be starting again. It's Luke 4, starting at verse 16. Follow along with me. I don't have it on the screen because I like you like looking in your Bible. Just how I am. All right, verse 16, follow along. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as, he, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it is written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant, and he sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him, and he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at his gracious words, of the gracious words that are coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless, you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months and a great famine came over the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in Sidon, to the the woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elijah, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill uh, on, on which the town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, 
he went away. Okay, there's a lot happening there. It starts off pretty good for the Nazarenes, but then everything really quickly derails. So let's just take a closer look and see what is happening in the text. First up, Jesus is in Nazareth. It's his hometown. He's begun his public ministry. There's already a buzz about him in the surrounding areas. He's made an impact in Cana and Samaria. He's flipped tables in the synagogue in Jerusalem. He's performed some kind of signs in Capernaum because it's referenced here. So news about Jesus is spreading. And he goes to his hometown, to the synagogue, that is their church, on, on, uh, on their Sabbath day gathering. And this was his custom. And don't let that, that small important detail like pass you by. Jesus went to church. It was his custom. And I'll just say, I could say a lot of things about it, but I'll just put it this simply. If it was good enough for Jesus, man, I think it's good enough for anyone. So... A typical uh, synagogue service began with an invocation for God's blessing. Then there was a recitation of the Shema, the Jewish confession of faith. Then there's followed by prayers, reading from the law and prophets, and then a brief sermon given by one of the many, one of the men of the congregation, or in some cases a visiting rabbi. And Jesus is asked to read the scripture text and then give the sermon. And it's in this moment that Jesus preaches in such a concise way on why he's on earth. He tells us what he came to do and how he's going to accomplish it. This text is his mission statement, his messianic purpose through the prophetic words of Isaiah. He reads from the scroll. It's found in Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. And all eyes are fixed on him as he reads it. And then he goes and he sits down. Because in, in, in the synagogue, you would stand to read, and then you would sit down to give the sermon. And the scripture that he read, well, it was well received by the people. But when he gives his sermon, everything changes. All we have recorded of his sermon are these words. He said this, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And now... Jesus has made a radical truth claim. And everyone in the synagogue knows it. Jesus has taken the gracious words from the scroll of Isaiah, words that brought admiration, and now he has ascribed them to himself. And it sets everyone off. So let's just take a closer look at what Jesus is claiming here. Verses 18 and 19. Uh, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. These are not the simple words of a carpenter. Jesus is claiming to be the Messiah. He's claiming to be sent by God. He's claiming that the Spirit of the Lord is upon him. Jesus has come in the power of the Holy Spirit. And he's been anointed by God, set apart, prepared by God. And his ministry will be like nothing else ever, nothing ever seen. 
He will heal physical ailments, but more importantly, he's here to heal souls. That is his task given to him by God the Father and worked out through the power of the Holy Spirit. And we see a picture of the Trinity in these words. To proclaim good news to the poor, to proclaim liberty to the captives, liberty to the oppressed, that is, from the bonds of sin, recover sight to the blind, both spiritually and physically, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This is what is called jubilee. It's a period of time marked by the forgiveness of debts and putting everyone and everything back to its right place. Now, for the Jews, there was a glimpse of this prophecy for the Jewish people when, in their history, the remnant, a small group of Israelites, returned to their promised land after 70 years of captivity in Babylon. And the Nazarenes, they would have known that very well. But now, Jesus is taking this picture of freedom and he's saying, I will usher this in. And he's not simply talking about physical freedom and spirit. Uh, uh, he's not just talking about spirit, physical freedom, but spiritual freedom from the bondage of sin and death. But the Jewish people were looking for a Messiah who would bring a golden age of prosperity and political freedom to their, pe- to their people. And Jesus, he's telling us here that he's going to bring this in. That's what they're thinking And the crowd goes on from hanging on to his gracious word and they quickly turn against him. And soon there's these murmurs. Isn't this guy who's speaking to us, isn't he just this young carpenter that we've known for so long? Isn't this Joseph's son whose parentage is a bit suspect? We don't know where this guy came from exactly. Surprise and admiration soon gives away to unbelief and scorn. And Jesus, knowing their hearts, he recites this proverb. Doubtless, you will quote me this proverb. Physician, heal yourself. What you have heard, what we have heard you do at Capernaum, do now in your hometown. Jesus, in his divine wisdom, knows their thoughts. They desperately want him to perform a sign or wonder. Now, Pastor Nick said this last week that People were always wanting a miracle, as if Jesus was some kind of circus act. And in Nazareth, they thought, you know, if we see a sign or a wonder with our own eyes, then maybe we might be persuaded to accept you as Messiah. But at this point, Jesus has nothing of it. He knows the hearts and minds of the people. They've rejected the message that he brings and thereby reject him. And he says... No prophet is acceptable in his own town. Or I could say it like this. Familiarity breeds the pride of contempt. And the cost of the Nazarene's pride is great. They reject Jesus' claim as Messiah and they become antagonistic to, to, to him. They want him to perform some miracles. And what does Jesus do? He just goes on to give them examples of when a Jewish prophet was rejected by the nation of Israel. So God sent them to perform miracles to the Gentiles. And his examples are of this, of a despised people group for the, for the Jews, 
a Phoenician woman. And then also Naaman, who was the commander of a Syrian army, the great enemy of Israel. That's his examples. And the cost of, the, of their pride is this. Jesus basically says, I'm going to leave. I'm going to go to where others will hear this message. And they understand exactly what he means. And they become indignant. They become filled with wrath. They grab him and they take him to kill him. This is like the equivalent of, like the Jewish equivalent of, don't you know who I am? Don't you know who we are? You don't tell me about liberty. Don't tell me about God's favor. Don't talk to us about blindness. We are God's chosen people. We know who we are. We don't need you, Jesus. We are not sharing our blessings with anyone, and we don't need you. They drive him out of town to a cliff. They're about to throw him, throw him over when everything just stops. And the text tells us that he just passed through their midst and went away. Now this week I asked a couple of students, uh, uh, what do you think happened in this, in this moment? Right? And some suggested Maybe Jesus just disappeared and then reappeared. Or, or, or maybe he did some sort of like Jedi mind trick, like these aren't the droids you're looking for, and then went through, you know? Maybe that's what he did, right? Another suggested this, that Jesus, in his authority, simply walked through the crowd and they parted for him. Now, we don't know exactly what happened. But that last suggestion is really how I picture it. Jesus, in the power of the Holy Spirit, in his holiness, quietly overawes the angry crowd with his calm self-possession. And in that moment, they stop and they let him pass. It's like the parting of the Red Sea, but with, pe- but with people. And Jesus leaves. And he lives. But what we see here is even in the beginning of Jesus' public ministry, we can see the shadow of the cross hanging over him. People wanted to rid themselves of Jesus from the beginning because he spoke the truth and they didn't want to face it. Jesus comes to his hometown of Nazareth and the people respond to Jesus by rejecting him. And he leaves Nazareth and as far as we know, it could have been forever. He might never have gone back there. And you think about like, what a painful visit to his hometown. Think about this. His mother, Mary, most likely is a witness to this. Think about that for just one second. She's watching this all unfold. Can you imagine what she would have felt as they rejected Jesus? But they didn't just reject him. They rejected his message. And in the same way, Jesus is rejected today. People say, nothing special. Beyond ordinary is this Jesus. 
a blip on the radar of human history. But you know what? The question still looms. What will you do with Jesus? Will you reject him as the people in Nazareth did? Will you not trust the words of this seemingly simple Jewish carpenter? Or will we look past our own ego and pride and see something more than just a man? Jesus' second encounter that we're going to get to involves a man named Peter, also called Simon or Simon Peter. And allow me just to break this down. This is in Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, if you want to go back and read that. But uh, 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 this is our second encounter, right? We, Jesus is, has left Nazareth. He's in Capernaum. It's about 35 miles away. It's on, the, it's on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, and he's preaching. He's not in a synagogue this time. He's preaching out to crowds. They've been following him now. He's gotten onto a boat. He's pushed out from shore because people are crowding around him. So he gets out on the boat, a little outside of the water, and then people are on the shore so that they can all hear him. Okay. And when Jesus has finished speaking to the crowd, he goes to Peter, who is finishing up his day of work, and Jesus says to Peter, Hey, why don't you put your boat out into some deep water and let your, da- let your nets out for a catch? Now, at first, Peter is a little reluctant. He says, Master, we, we toiled all night and took nothing. So Peter's already a little frustrated. And now he has Jesus, this carpenter, telling him how to do his job. But to Peter's credit, he says to Jesus, I will put out my boat because you say so. Because Peter saw something. In Jesus from the start. So Peter and his companions, they go out into the deep water, they cast their nets, and when they pull them up, they have such a large catch of fish that the nets begin to break, so they call their partners from another boat to come over to help them so the boat doesn't sink from the weight of fish. And these men have just witnessed a miracle. This is some good news to these poor fishermen. This catch represents life-sustaining income and more. And Peter is in awe. He's just caught more fish than he knows what to do with. And after they secure their catch, Peter falls on his knees and cries out to Jesus, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. That's his response. That's his response to Jesus. I don't know why he does that. I actually know exactly why he does that. But for a fisherman that just got a bunch of fish, I mean, you would think you'd be excited. You wouldn't be sitting there crying out, get away from me. You'd say, thanks. I love it. I love this catch of fish. I needed it. Why would he ever respond that way? When seeing such a miracle. And this is why. Because in that moment, in that moment right there, Peter came to understand the truth that the Nazarenes were blind to see. Jesus is radically different than me. Jesus is radically different than anyone. There is no one like 
him. He is God and I am not. And in that moment, Peter in fear and trembling has been set for he falls to the ground at Jesus' feet. He knows that Jesus is no mere man, and he realizes that Jesus is holy. And Peter's experience is far different from what happens in Nazareth. Instead of being filled with pride, Peter recognizes Jesus' holiness and then looks at himself in relation to it and automatically sees the void of his own sin and the giant chasm that it creates between himself and the Holy One. And, and Peter just cries out, Get away from me! Stay away from me! And this, this is the proper response of any human being when in the presence of a just and holy God. Peter's response is a right response to the Messiah. And I look at this scene in Luke 5, and then I place it up against the scene in Nazareth, and there's something interesting. When Jesus passes through their midst, when they're trying to throw them, throw him off the cliff, I'm reminded this, they didn't touch him either. Even in their unbelief, they pulled back because there's something about Jesus. I know people who don't believe in Jesus who even pull back from him now. Peter is seeing Jesus for who he is and then he sees himself in the light of Jesus and his response is, I'm a sinful man. Or in other words, he says, I am in deep need Peter is basically saying this. I am poor in spirit. I'm a captive to sin. I am spiritually blind. Heal me. But for us in this scene, it just looks like Peter on the ground, fearful, telling Jesus to stay away. Now, if this scene were to end right here, this would be the saddest short story ever told it would be a tragedy if Peter simply said stay away and Jesus did as he asked then we would certainly be lost but that is not what happens because as Peter calls out his own sinfulness Jesus looks down at him and says these calming powerful and anointed words do not be afraid Jesus does not reject the sinner. He invites him in. And he breaks the tension with these words. Fear not. I've come to proclaim the good news. And then he doesn't stop there. Next he says, now come and follow me. And I will make you fishers of men. In those three words, come, follow me, Jesus invites Peter to learn who Jesus really is. He's God incarnate. He's the Holy One, the Messiah. 
He's the way, the truth, and the life. Our only way to salvation. This was the message he brought to Nazareth, but they refused to listen because of their prideful contempt. They just saw Jesus as the son of Joseph, just a man. But Peter looked upon Jesus, and he saw the Messiah, the one who saves us from our sins. And so I ask again, what will you do with Jesus? Will you reject him and rely on your own strength? Will you say what our culture says? I am enough. I am enough. What an empty platitude. What a bankrupt statement. I am enough. We hear that everywhere. I'm not enough. I desperately need Jesus. Will we acknowledge him as Lord and follow him? Because what you will do with Jesus is the most important decision of your life. If you do not put your trust in him, what is the alternative? The alternative is trust in humanity. Or more more concisely, trust in yourself. Let's just look out at the world. Let's just look out at it. Do you see peace, freedom, liberty in the world around us? I don't. I see man's continual attempt to try and get those things. But they just can't. Because we're not capable. Because only He is enough. And if you are here and you're thinking, oh, I'm good, I'm good, I'm doing well. How's that working out for you? I see people in the world wandering in need of a Savior, and that Savior is Jesus Christ, the one who calls out to sinners, do not be afraid. Come and follow me. Come near to me, all who are heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. Jesus is not a mere blip on the radar of human history. Jesus is the anchor of all history. Not just human history, but God's redemptive history. That is, God's plan to redeem humanity back to himself. To proclaim good news to the poor, to proclaim liberty to the captives, to to recover sight to the blind, set free those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. What will you do with Jesus? My hope and prayer is that you will follow him because he is good, very, very good. Will you pray with me?